I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to the Corin Podcast. Alex, what is in store for us on this episode? We have a really interesting episode this week. Uh, we wanted to talk about Tara and technology, but that's obviously a massive, massive topic. So we thought we'd scale it back a bit. Um, we're going to be talking to two people who have been using the internet to teach Tara to huge audiences around the world in very different ways. Uh, we're going to be talking to Rabbi Sarah Walkenfeld from Safaria, um, as well as Rabbi David Foreman from the Aleph Beta Academy, who also has a new book coming out Uh, very shortly with Mugged Books. Uh, We're going to talk to them about how they are using their respective platforms to teach Tara to these vast numbers of people all over the world. Without further ado, let's go. We're delighted to be joined by Rabbanit Sarah Wolkenfeld. Rabbanit Wolkenfeld is Chief Learning Officer at Safaria and speaks frequently at shuls, schools and university communities across the country and the world. Uh, Rabbanit Wolkenfeld, great to have you with us on the current podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so just to start, can you tell us a bit about um, your background in terms of in roles in education and how you came to join uh, Safaria? Absolutely. My background is as a Jewish educator. I've never had a position that wasn't either learning Jewish texts or teaching Jewish texts. And I always like to lead with that when I speak about Safaria because I have no technological background, no training in, in engineering or software design or anything like that. And I wouldn't even describe myself as an early adopter of any technologies in particular. So that's really important. At the same time, I will say by way of, of coming clean that my father, Oliver Shalom, was a computer programmer. And so I grew up in a home that I would describe as a techno-optimist environment, which is to say that I've always really believed in the power of digital technologies to improve our lives and especially our lives as Jews. And so I would say that 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 shaped me and it was my passion for learning and teaching Jewish texts that really led me directly to this position. So just for anyone uh, listening who's not familiar with Safaria or or what you're doing, um, could you just give us very briefly what is it that Safaria does uh, and what are the sort of educational or methodological uh, aims? Sure. Safaria is a uh, open access, freely accessible, open source site for Jewish texts. It's a platform that enables anyone with an internet connection to be able to access the text of the Jewish tradition. Um, first and foremost, we're putting the text of the Jewish tradition online. We are also putting them out there in a form that we hope is accessible to people. So having an interface that's intuitive, that's easy to use, that's really important to us. It's important to us to put these texts in languages that people speak. English, first and foremost, and Koran has really been an amazing partner to us in allowing that to happen in so many cases. Um, But we eventually hope to branch out to other languages as well. And so that's, that's a big component of what we mean by accessibility. It's also really important to us that the website is open source. The texts, of, uh, the texts of the library on the site are either 
in the public domain or licensed to the Creative Commons in almost all cases. We want people to not just be the passive recipients of the text that they're reading. We want them to be able to do things with the text. We want them to build new things. That's true of our code base, actually. We'd like app developers everywhere to know that they can build apps using our digital infrastructure. And we also want people to take our texts and use them to continue the conversation, the conversation that really makes up so much of the Jewish tradition. We want people to write the next books of halakha and the next books of Talmud commentary and whatever else it is, we want them to craft that using Safari's materials on Safari's platform so that more and more people can be part of that conversation. Your professional experience, uh, as you say, you've spent either learning or teaching Jewish texts. Um, and one of the aims of uh, Safari is to help people engage with the text. Um, are there any deficiencies or difficulties that you identified that really drew you to, to begin working with Safaria uh, to allow you to address uh, that sort of lacking and help people connect with the text themselves? I don't think of it so much as deficiencies or any particular flaw that I could put a finger on. I think that there is a general desire for uh, educators that, that educators always have to teach more and to teach more deeply and to influence our students even more strongly. And I would say that, that that general passion or that general idea made me excited when I heard about something that would potentially present those opportunities to my students to be able to learn more, to be able to go deeper into the text. One of the things that really stood out to me from my five years at Princeton was that I had all of these amazingly bright, motivated students really just incredible people with so much to contribute to the Jewish people and often with so little background knowledge. And I saw how they were held back in their desire to give back to the Jewish community. They were held back in their desire to participate. They were held back in their desire to bring others in because they lacked access to the texts that were a part of my own upbringing. So I don't think that that was a dissatisfaction so much as it was a passion that drove me. And I really saw that potential in Safari from the beginning to open up the text of the Jewish tradition to more and more people. And have, I mean, can you think of any examples of where you saw you, you, you've seen Safari in action in those cases where you have students who, let's say, were less familiar with Jewish texts and now have more familiarity with it because they've been able to access it through Safari? And who do you see as Safari's core audience? I get emails and, uh, and messages about this kind of thing all the time. It's hard to isolate a single one. We're always getting messages um, saying, wow, this is amazing. You've opened up the world of Jewish texts. Um, I guess I would say about a month ago, I was teaching a group of high school students, some of whom had no previous exposure in depth to Jewish texts. And I showed them a little bit about Safaria. And one of them said to me, wow, I've, I've always been interested in learning more about Judaism, but I never thought that I could because I don't really read Hebrew. Um, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't think that I could ever access those texts. And this is amazing. I'm going to spend my next few hours exploring and seeing what there is. So that was a wonderful moment. And I think it's just indicative of the kind of impact that Safari can have. Anyone who would describe themselves as a learner or a potential learner is Safari's core audience. For me, in my role, it's important that I don't make a big distinction between uh, what you might call educators or teachers and students. 
I think that we're all learners. I think that the reason, certainly I can speak for myself, the reason I became an educator is because I love learning Jewish texts. So I might be in a different place on my learning journey than someone else, someone who's just started out, but we're all on that journey. And I really believe that anyone can be a learner of Jewish texts. That's, to me, that's, that's really the core of Safari's vision, that anyone can be a learner. And so I think anyone can be part of our audience. Okay, so we've spoken about, you know, what, Saf- what Safaria is, is doing. Um, you know, this, I suppose it, it is a revolution in terms of, uh, again, giving access to, uh, to Jewish texts and, and through that, you know, to just Judaism at large. Um, can you identify any ways in which Safaria has altered the way that people are learning Jewish texts, not just, you know, they're moving online, but the way that people are, are engaging with the texts, um, both... Uh, you know, you, you're saying you, we, we talk about learners, we're not talking about educators and students, but let's say, you know, someone being more active in terms of teaching as opposed to someone being more active in terms of, of receiving, uh, you know, how has Safaria um, impacted sort of the, the learning space? First and foremost, I think that we've seen a tremendous change in terms of the, just the sheer resources that people can access. That's probably the top response that we get, both in terms of our traditional texts. I hear from people who say, I had heard of Rashi, but you have all these other commentaries that show up in the sidebar, and I'd never heard of half of them, and I'd certainly never read them before. And now I've discovered all of these other people who also commented on the text of the Torah. That's one component of it. And then also, I think, um, a broader range of sources in terms of teachers of Torah who are living and working now. Because Safaria allows for user-generated content on the site, we call those sheets, and anyone can make a sheet on Safaria and share it. I'm always hearing, every time I give a workshop and, and I speak to people who've used Safari a little bit, always hear from people who say, I found this teacher, I found this person, I found this colleague who's producing this great material and I love reading it and it's so interesting to me. So I think access to more sources is a really key component of what we offer, maybe, maybe the most obvious, but kind of not to be overlooked. Another big change that I see is, again, that user-generated content, I think the ability for people to create using Safari's resources. And that's, that's I think, a, a real, it's taken a real cultural shift. When we first started Safaria, and I used to speak with people about sharing their materials publicly, people were generally horrified at the idea, both because they felt that their sheets were proprietary if they put the work in to make them. And also because many people felt, well, my work isn't really good enough. It wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. Why would I put it up there publicly? Why would I put it out there for people to see? And I think that there's, there's maybe sometimes merit to both of those arguments. But by and large, I think the fact that we now have so many sheets publicly available on our site speaks to the fact that more people are feeling empowered to put their voices out there. And certainly when I work with students, I have never ever had someone under the age of 18 express any qualms about making their material public. It's just a different generation. My high school students have loved it, both when they get likes on their sheets and when they see sheets that their camp friends across the country have created in their classes. So that's a very powerful experience. I'm happy that Safari is moving everyone, moving the Jewish people towards being hopefully not just a nation of learners, but a nation of of creators of Torah. And that's, that's a very powerful change, I think, as well. Um, and the third thing that I'll mention 
maybe it has to do a little bit more with, with classrooms specifically, but I think it could also apply to people's homes, is that I think Safaria allows you to have a kind of Beit Midrash-like environment on the go or wherever you are. So that feeling that anyone who's ever spent time, uh, quality time, I would say, in a Beit Midrash, that feeling that you know where there's, you're just surrounded by possibilities and you can pull one book off a shelf and then another book off a shelf and you have the power to do some of that exploring. I think that we are more and more putting those tools into people's hands. And often when I do workshops, people tell me, I don't read any Hebrew, didn't know any Hebrew, it's amazing that I now feel that I can explore in this way. And so you mentioned the workshops that you do. Um, when speaking to educators or approaching educators about Safaria, what are the kinds of, I guess, educational opportunities you present to say, you know, here's some examples of ways that Safaria can be used by educators? When I'm speaking with educators about Safaria, part of what I tell them is what I've, what I've already mentioned about the wider range of sources available to students, I think that's very important, but I really lean into this question of gaining greater independence around Jewish texts, because I think that this is a, an under, underutilized, under-discussed part of the curricula of Jewish schools, Jewish learning opportunities in so many cases. Educators are really focused on giving over specific information, specific material, without necessarily keeping the bigger picture in mind. So you could teach a class that is about Sefer Shemot, about the book of Exodus, and it can be a very impactful class. The student can learn a lot about the particular chapters that you're teaching. And you might never know that they're not really oriented in terms of where Sefer Shemot is in the larger Tanakh, or um, really they don't actually know who Rashi was. Um, or that Rashi actually was not a contemporary of Sefer Shmot, or that there's other commentaries beyond Rashi, that, you know, it's not just Rashi who sort of received a tradition about what these verses mean, and that was the end of it. I think students very often don't know the way that the text that they're learning resonates forward in time throughout the Jewish tradition. These are all components that students can explore with some degree of independence, no matter no matter what their skill level, on Safaria. I usually tell educators that the youngest students who can use Safaria effectively in an independent way are students who are in second grade and up because you have to be able to click and you have to be able to read. Clicking comes very early. That skill comes very young nowadays. Reading comes a little later. And I've worked with students as young as third graders to help them click through Safaria's connections and really get a sense of their own their own mastery, their own sense of, of being oriented within Jewish texts and being able to move between them. So that's maybe the most important component that I can speak with educators about. Of course, right now, it's very important to also think through the opportunities for remote learning, for blended learning, for all kinds of things digital. And obviously, Safaria um, has a lot to contribute in that realm. I think also going along with that is the feeling, which I, I wish teachers felt this way all the time, but I think that COVID-19 has especially brought this out, a feeling that you, you can't just speak to students for 45 minutes. You have to give them something active to do. And that's really a strength of Safari's as well. I'm very interested in this idea of mastery. Um, we're speaking only a few days after the sad passing of Ralph Steinsaltz. Uh, so I've been thinking uh, quite a lot about his educational philosophy. Um, for example, in the uh, Noe edition, Karen Talmud Bavli, 
uh, for one, his goal with the Talmud project, whether it's the English or the Hebrew, uh, is to give the person learning the tools they need to no longer have to rely on his notes and his commentary, uh, to you know, give you the skills that, that you need to become an independent learner. Um, and so I'm wondering, how does Safaria uh, fit with that sort of model? It's a great question. I'm not sure that with any, uh, any site or any library, I don't know. I mean, I think we have this concept of like an autodidact, someone who just sits down in a library full of texts and reads them all and then knows everything. I think that that's rare and it, that doesn't really have anything to do with print versus digital. I think that you always need teachers of Torah and models of Torah in your life to really be fully knowledgeable. And I would say that Safaria, right, that's true. That's true for printed books. And I think that's true for Safaria as well. Where I think Safaria excels, as I mentioned before, is this ability to find teachers whose Torah really speaks to you on Safaria. And so I definitely see that as a way, not just of gaining mastery over text, but you mentioned this idea of finding, finding something that draws you in. I think it's also important to find a teacher who draws you in and find someone whose who's message is compelling to you and feels like someone you could learn from. And I do meet people who maybe have a, a textual background, they have some day school education or they have a strong background in, in going to adult education classes, but they've never found that piece that really speaks to them. And when they do, that makes all the difference. So I think that in that sense, Safari really offers a key to, to unlock what, what's needed to want to gain mastery and to lead to mastery. Um, and mastery comes in, in all different forms, I think, as well. So I think we'll probably, maybe always as a strong term, I think for a long time, we'll have ideas in our head as a Jewish community about what mastery looks like. And it just won't include a computer because computers are not that old. And maybe in 100 years or 50 years or 500 years, we'll learn to be more flexible with our definitions. I think those things will keep shifting. Um, so looking at, I guess, Safari as a tool for educators, um, is there a way you give us, I guess it's difficult in an audio format, but I guess a bit of a taste of taking a particular topic or theme and how you would teach that theme or topic through different resources and different kind of methods that you could find on Safari? Sure. There's a lot of different ways depending on the topic and the text. I'll give, I'll give one example. I taught a workshop this summer for educators who were interested particularly in in raising themes of social justice when they go back to the classroom this fall. Social justice in all sorts of forms, either because they're teaching about, uh, they're teaching for the high holidays, so they're teaching about Shuvot, Tzvilot, Tzedakah, they want to talk about charity and the importance of Tzedakah in, in, uh, in repentance. Um, others are thinking about other forms of, uh, of Tzedek or Tzedakah in Jewish tradition, but that was a common theme between the teachers. Safaria has recently built a new search tool and really a new, a new sort of part of our site called Topics so that text can be researched topically and not just by going through to the original text. So the educators I was working with, and I think this would be paralleled in their students, they, they knew essentially what they were interested in but they didn't know where to find that. They wouldn't have known to open up, let's say, a particular Sefer in Tanakh or a particular part of the Talmud. And certainly their students wouldn't have had that ability. And so I showed them how one could type a topic into the search bar, select 
let's say, hashtag charity from the search results. Safaria takes you to a page that is all about Staka, all about charity, and gives you both sources and sheets that will then give you resources to think through that topic. It'll also give you related topics. It'll tell you, you know, give you a sense of, of who's written on this topic. Um, it might take you into Maimonides' levels of charity and you might be able to go from there and kind of follow that journey. I would say that's all about giving people a starting point. What I find powerful about doing it with students in particular is that I think that it's, it's common for students, certainly middle school and up, to have, to have a sense of strong interest, right? They know what interests them. They know what they care about. And what they don't always know is how contemporary our tradition really is. What they don't always know is that there's actually Torah that speaks to the questions that they have. And so I think that's a very important tool that I often recommend to teachers in, in all kinds of learning settings um, to, to pursue their interests on Safaria. Safaria seems to be this, or certainly what you're doing, uh, seems to be sort of this, this next step in giving access to, to the Torah. Um, you know, going back all the way to, you know, Rabbi Huda Nasi, who's writing down the Mishnah so that it wouldn't be forgotten that people could learn it, to Rav Steinsaltz, who was, you know, trying to make it understood by everyone, giving people the tools that they needed to, to then move on to, to, uh, to the next step. Um, is, is Safaria, or, you know, these, these workshops that you're running, do you see these as, as replacing traditional learning, or do you think that there's, still, there's still room for, you know, for sitting in a room one, two people, a classroom of people, and, you know, with a book open in front of them? I think the answer is already in your question, because you referenced a few different phases of Jewish history. Traditional Jewish learning is, uh, is made traditional by the people who do it. Rabbi Yehuda Anasi didn't have books. He certainly didn't have, you know, the Koran Steinsaltz edition of the Talmud. Um, and, and nonetheless, he knew a lot of Torah. And, uh, and that's amazing, right? Rabbi Yehuda Nasi maybe represents an innovation in writing things down, but as I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, the Talmud thought that writing things down would be the end, potentially, of Jewish wisdom and couldn't imagine such a world. And when the printing press was invented, there were many, many opponents who also thought that this would signal the end of, certainly of Jewish learning as they knew it. And I don't know, maybe it did, because I can't really envision a world that's pre-printing crest. I was never part of that world. So maybe it really did signal the end of one Jewish traditional style of learning and the beginning of a new one. And I hear this a lot from people who say, how can we be Jewish without books? And I say, I don't know, but Rashi did it. So right, somehow I think it is possible. I don't see this as replacing anything, but I think that it's all a part of the evolution of Jewish learning that's always been a part of what it means to be a, a Jewish person who learns. I'm a big believer in selecting the technology that fits best for the task at hand. And so when people tell me, here's why I use books, books are really important for the following three reasons. My response is great. I think you should use a book. And when that same person then says to me, but I don't have enough books for everyone in my classroom and the number of students in my class is constantly shifting and it's too much to ask them to buy the books, then I say to them, I really think you should consider using a digital version of the text. And that's not because I think one is better or worse, but they're differently well suited to different needs and different tasks. Slightly jumping around a little bit. Um, what would you, what experience, I mean, you mentioned before in terms of working with the students at Princeton, are there other experiences you had as an educator in the past and that you brought with you to Safari and said, 
these are educational um, settings or these are educational challenges that um, are being faced that I think we can really address with Safaria? That's a great question. I love that question. I, I will mention two. Um, one is, I think, being in the Jewish nonprofit world, broadly speaking, so not specifically Princeton Hill, but just, just a kind of conglomeration of things made me see that so often when resources are, are put forward, when organizations, communities, individual teachers gather resources to teach, especially those who are less knowledgeable, there's a heavy reliance on second and third hand sources and a feeling that we have to kind of package things very carefully. Otherwise people won't be attracted to Torah. They won't want to study, they won't pursue that. And I guess actually this was a little bit influenced by my experience at Princeton as well, but I just felt that that's not true. I think that just because you don't have a lot of background in Jewish texts doesn't mean that you're less smart or less intelligent or less open to sophisticated thought. And I actually think that in so many cases, the, the great scholars who, who compose the texts that make up our tradition did an amazing job. And it's okay to, to kind of give people that exposure and let them have that firsthand access to texts. So that's one, that's one piece that I saw. And the other thing I'll mention speaking more personally is that I'm very lucky to have grown up as a woman in a modern Orthodox community where I had a lot of access to Jewish texts and even access to Talmud study from a very young age. But part of the teaching that I've done over the course of my career, speaking with groups of women at synagogues and on campuses um, and really in, in many different places, um, has, has led me to see that that's not been the case for so many women, that they feel shut out of Jewish learning, they were shut out of Jewish learning, and maybe even now they don't have a great place to go to access those texts. And for me, it's very important that Safaria is that space where, again, anyone can really come and learn text. It's a virtual Beit Midrash that you can take with you in your iOS app or your Android app or on your laptop. And it doesn't discriminate based on gender. And I'm really uh, so grateful that we have that. I suppose this is the uh, the million pound question or the million dollar question, uh, which is what's next for Safaria? What's, uh, where are you going from here? You know, it's, it's free to access, it's open source. Everyone can access whatever they want. Uh, from the whole gamut of, of Jewish texts, but what are the next steps? There are so many different answers I could give to that question uh, because there are so many different things at any given time that Safari is working on. One, one thing that's very important for I think the continued success of Safari or for Safari to grow is that we take advantage of the digital technology that, that is at our core and uh, and, right, and that means sort of not, not trying to be a book and recognizing that not everything is going to be published on our site. Right? If we were a publisher, maybe we'd be trying to sort of draw all the content into our site. That's not going to happen because of all the various copyright issues. And so we want to be more and more of an aggregator of, uh, of Jewish wisdom. And so it's actually, it's live on our site and it's growing as we speak. Safaria built, several years back, we built a linker so that any website, any Torah website that has citations of Torah texts, Safaria can give the website owner code to run on that site. So it, it kind of catches the references and links to Safaria. So if you were to write an article about, uh, about Parshat Breshit and you had quotes of Sukim in Parshat Breshit, those would actually link out to Safaria. 
more recently, we've, we've made that code run in two directions so that when, let's say, a website like My Jewish Learning or uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs' Torah website quotes a pasuk in Safaria or a pasuk in the Torah, and it's linked to Safaria, Safaria will then um, link out to that website. So it's not just that if you're thinking, let me let me read all the commentary that, you know, that I can find on this Parsha. You can do that on Safaria. Let me see all of the user-generated sheets. You can do that on Safaria. You can also see, let me see what other Torah websites have articles that quote this Pasuk that I'm looking at. You can do that on Safaria as well. So that's something that we've already created and that we're, we're building out more and more. I think another more, more experimental piece uh, is to think about the ways in which Safaria can can grow its sense of community. So we uh, we've been doing some experiments around video chat on Safaria, um, building out some of our source sheet tools so that people can feel more of a sense of community and coming together with others on Safaria. I think that's not just a coronavirus thing. We were thinking in that direction already. As I said, anyone who has spent quality time in a Beit Midrash has that feeling of, of wanting to be in that space. Um, but certainly now it's even more relevant. And so we're looking to build out that, that piece around, I guess I would call it broadly chavruta, around the text on our site. Um, would you say that there are, we spoke before in terms of, I guess, what Safari can offer educators with and, and sort of challenges or difficulties that you identified that you thought could be addressed with Safari? Um, do you think there are, I guess, from your experience of, of working in the classroom um, and other teaching settings, do you think there are challenges out there that can't be addressed digitally or with Safari as an example? Sure. I think there's lots of challenges that can't be addressed with Safari. Um Within Jewish education, I don't yeah. mean like global warming. And yes. climate, I uh, you know, I, I guess... Um, I, I'm, I mean, I'm teasing you a little bit, but I think that there is sometimes a sense that I get from educators of wanting, wanting technology to be the answer to everything. And I, I don't think that. So for example, I get a lot of questions around classroom management and you can find all different kinds of technologies that will you know, track your students every click and monitor them and make sure that they can't click out of the window that you've put them in and all sorts of things. I already mentioned, I'm not the engineer on the team. So I can't even, I can't even begin to enumerate all the possibilities. There are technologies for that. My personal feeling and the philosophy with which I try to imbue Safaria is that Lozo Haderach, I don't think that's the way. I don't think that there is a good technological solution to that particular challenge in Jewish education. I think that the answer there is the same as it's always been, which is at the end of the day, you have to engage the students. You have to interest them in the subject matter. Now, do I think that students might be more likely, at least at first, to be interested because it's cool and it's an app and you can click and it's on your computer or it's on your phone? Maybe, right? That might be a little bit of an advantage. It might wear off over time, especially as more and more things move online. But, uh, but, but maybe that gives you an advantage. But I think that for some things, there is no substitute for having a great teacher, having an, uh, an influential role model, and so I think it's really important that we keep in mind those limitations. At the end of the day, Safaria is never going to build a tool that traps you on our site. We're never going to build a tool that allows teachers to um, kind of uh, 
have that kind of surveillance over their students' actions. That's not what we envision. We envision ourselves as a, as a Beit Midrash, a place where people come to study because they want to study. And so I would say it's, it's a limitation of the technology, but it's actually a limitation that we are pretty, are pretty comfortable with and, and even celebrate in some ways. Um, and I guess we, we touched on this before in terms of what Nexus Faria, and we've talked about, um, I guess, in general, sort of the, the role that digital um, approaches can take in Talmud Torah. But from, a, from, edu- from an educator's perspective, um, from someone who's worked in communities, like what, what, what does Talmud Torah look like, let's say, in 20, 50 years' time? What do you think? Where, where are we going with this? Um. 2050 feels a long way away. Um, I do think, um, you know, you, there was a question earlier about mastery. I think we will think differently about mastery, and I hope we'll think differently about the relative place of teacher and student. I think it's already starting to happen. I did see really a big breakthrough, for better or for worse, mostly, I guess, for worse, um, you know, in these last few months where schools were shut down. Um, I saw teachers giving power to students that they would never have given them previously. I saw students gaining mastery in ways that they wouldn't have. Even just the fact that every teacher has had the experience of teaching a class on Zoom and not knowing how to, how to do the thing that they wanted to do. And they say in frustration, I can't figure out how to whatever. And every single student in the class is like, I'll tell you how to do that. Um, right? That's, that's an unusual, it's, a, it's an unaccustomed feeling for teachers. And I hope that by 2050, it's not that way anymore. I hope that teachers will move to a place of being more transparent about their own learning. I didn't actually know every commentary on this verse in advance of teaching you until I sat down to research it. And here's how, how I researched it. And you can research it also. You can also gain those tools. I think, um, I hope that, that that kind of shift to really a sense of everyone being on a learning path instead of there being this big, big gap between you're the teacher and I'm the student. I hope that that's a shift that will happen by 2050. I think we could probably talk for hours uh, about what, what the world of education might look like in 20 or 50 years time, uh, but I think we're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on uh, on the show this week um, and telling us all about your work at Sferia. Um, and I hope we can have you back on the show soon. Thank you, looking forward. We are joined now by Rabbi David Foreman, who is the founder and CEO at Aleph Beta Academy and the author of several books, including The Beast That Crouches at the Door, which was a finalist for the 2007 National Jewish Book Award, and the new Genesis, a Parsha Companion from Mugged Books. Rabbi Foreman, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me, guys. So before we get stuck into the meat of today's episode, talking about you know using technology to, to teach Torah, uh, could you give us a bit of background to Aleph Beta? What were the circumstances under which you you founded this now massive organization using uh, the internet to teach Tara in this really new and quite exciting way? Hmm. Well, that's a very short question with a very long answer. So we'll <laughs> see how 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 you put this together. Um, Let's see, I guess I had been, uh, you know, teaching Chumash and Tanakh uh, for, you know, a good 15 years before uh, Aleph Beta came into existence in the early, uh, you know, 2011, 2012 uh, kind of period. 
uh, at a certain point, I kind of arrived at a kind of methodology of researching and studying text and teaching it um, that I felt was working and it was revelatory for me and very exciting for me. Um, but I was doing it, you know, pretty much in a traditional fashion. Uh, I was teaching in a university. I taught at Johns Hopkins University. I was teaching home groups. Uh, I would lecture here and there. I would go to Pesach programs, uh, do all that. I had published a book or two. And all those are kind of traditional ways of reaching people. But uh, I guess there were two things that uh, kind of came together. One thing that uh, was that I kind of felt like uh, I had a whole bunch of tremendous Torah that I uh, was excited about teaching, but I didn't really have a great distribution mechanism. Books weren't bad, uh, but books are are hard to write. They lack a certain kind of intimacy of, uh, and a, a sort of back and forth and teaching. Um, I was looking for uh, something else that could reach a larger amount of people uh, with what I wanted to reach uh, with. And I, I didn't know what that was. Um, for a while, I struggled with that question. Um, I went through a phase where I created teacher guides on some of my material to make them available to teachers. And a bunch of teachers used them, but I didn't, again, really have a great distribution mechanism. How do I reach the teachers? How do I get them interested? How do I get them involved? You know, I didn't quite have a way of doing that. Um, but I was sort of focused on education in my mind, focused on trying to help teachers. And that desire to try to get out there in a larger way coincided with something else, which was uh, I guess I always had, in addition to an interest in teaching, kind of an interest in, in, in crafting a presentation almost as a work of art. To some extent, I did that in audio recordings, which I put out in tapes. But the real, you know, $64,000 question I always felt was, could I put out a movie? Way back in my uh, early yeshiva career, um, I remember just when I had graduated high school and was in my first year base, base medrash in Nair Yisrael. So uh, it, was, it was very early, you know, it was in the early 80s, it must have been. There was very little technology. But I remember making a Purim play on film, essentially. And it was, uh, it was really just on s slides and a soundtrack. Um, but I was able to, to hone it to exactly what I wanted it to be. And it was, it was really hilarious, it was wonderful. It was a spoof of National Geographic um, uh, if you've ever watched the David Attenborough style nature films. Um, and it, it, it just excited me to be able to present material in that kind of way. This was humorous material. But I guess I'd always wonder, was there a way to create a compelling presentation around Torah? And, you know, art has such value and the ability to really draw a listener in and, and create a very uh, intimate and powerful emotional slash intellectual experience. It, it was... Very exciting, but uh, I again, I didn't really have the tools to do that either. And then I stumbled on um, a TED talk by Salman Khan, and he was talking about how he had just started teaching his nephew uh, with little YouTube videos online, and other people were finding the videos and were getting excited about them, and he created this little library of the videos, and it really took off, and the Gates Foundation eventually got behind it. And he saw it as a chance to what he called flip the classroom, which is to be able to have a really great lecturer um, 
And instead of the lectures happening in the front of the classroom, lectures could happen for homework and classroom time could be de devoted to teachers working with kids directly on problems in the classroom, a kind of flip of the way that it's, it normally works. And there was a lot of excitement around what he was trying to do. And I thought to myself, wow, that's really kind of, there's that movie creating possibility. There's that uh, education angle about being able to help teachers. I wonder if I could do something like that. So I saw what he was doing. Um, he had a really low tech solution, just this little tablet that he was writing with and creating these like little presentations that he would talk over on the internet. And I figured, you know, I could do that. Um, I downloaded some software, some basic Camtasia software, and I started putting together stuff. And I put down this, and I created this little video and some stuff I was working on on Yavna, which you can now see is actually a, one of our Aleph Beta courses. And then a video on the Ten Commandments, which you can also see it's one of our Aleph Beta courses. Very low tech. Um, just PowerPoints and, 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 but it was, it felt exciting to be able to begin to create an immersive presentation for people. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have people around me who believed in my work, who had skills that I didn't have. One of those was a fellow by the name of Kuti Shalev. Um, Kuti was a, a, is an entrepreneur who specializes in building businesses, software for service online. And before I knew it, Kuti kind of surreptitiously started building a company around what I was starting to do. Um, he, you know, pitched in some money himself and hired a video editor to take what I did and take it up a notch. And then uh, we hired some other people. And uh, basically what we did was we just experimented with stuff and put it out there and met with a lot of failure in the beginning. Um, there were, uh, turns out that original model of aiming for schools was probably a little too early. Schools weren't quite ready for what we were doing. We were creating semester-long courses ultimately for them. And uh, the idea of Jewish schools flipping the classroom uh, wasn't something that they were quite ready to do yet. So we had some nominal success. But then we noted that once we started making the videos shorter, instead of semester-length videos, holiday videos, which were four or five videos long, which were maybe an hour, an hour and a half long, uh, there was a lot of interest. And the interest wasn't just in schools. It was just in regular people. Um, and then we started, figured, you know what, if we can do that, let's create Parsha videos. And basically for my kind of methodology, I found that the sweet spot about the, the shortest I could say something intelligent in was about, you know, five to 10 minutes. Uh, so we created these 10 minute Parsha videos. Uh, and that really kind of was the birth of Aleph Beta. Um, so it, it was a kind of, I can't say it would be fun if I could get, come here and say, well, I had this dream to create you know, one day I woke up in the morning and I conceptualized the whole thing and it was just a matter of rolling it out bit by bit. Um, it was a little bit more organic than that. Um, and, uh, but that's kind of the story of how it came to be. Okay, and as things have developed, as you say, organically, um, what have you found are the methods that you brought from sort of the traditional teaching that you had done and what are the more, I guess, new innovative methods that you've brought that you would never have thought of doing before, but now you've found in this new platform? Sure. I mean, I guess one of the things that the platform enables is a kind of rich, immersive experience, which is akin to learning in person, but you can learn with people all around the world um, instead. And for my type of teaching that was um, helpful. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a background. Before I 
worked for, started Aleph Beta, I worked for many years as a uh, senior editor and editor writer for the Art School Gemara Project, the Schattenstein edition of the Talmud. So I, I worked for about seven years of that. I published uh, Kushin volumes one and two. Um, and I remember Yechezkel Danziger, who was the head of the project, once said something memorable to me. He says, you know, David, um, Gemara is hard enough that we should be focusing our efforts and creating as simple a product as possible, right? It's not about the fancy sentence structure. It's not about sounding smart. It's not about putting all this, this glitz in there. You're looking to create the simplest, clearest delivery of the material such that the reader should be able to focus 97% of their mental energy on figuring out what the Gemara is saying and only 3% of their mental energy in figuring out what you're saying, right? And so that became kind of a touchstone for me, a guiding kind of thing. You know, it's just like, as a teacher, I always thought how transparent could I make what I was saying? How simple could I make it? How clear could I make it? And I found that the ability to use visuals in addition to sound was a real plus. The vision I had with Aleph Beta was not to use visuals as a way of distracting, because you can do that too, right? You can distract people with sound, with music. You can throw up pretty pictures. You can have them look at your face, right? But none of that, it doesn't, if you see my face on screen while I'm talking to you, you know, for 45 minutes, that doesn't do anything to help you understand what I'm trying to tell you, right? It may feed my ego because you're looking at me, but it doesn't actually help you understand what I'm saying, right? And if I show you pretty pictures or play loud music in the background, that also just distracts you, it doesn't really help you. So the challenge I always felt with our video editors and one of the metrics that we hold them to is how creative can you be um, in illustrating the ideas visually as powerfully as possible and even providing, you know, even, even allowing the visual medium to be such where sometimes I don't have to say things, I can actually rely on a picture to, to describe it for me. So there's a lot of freedom there um, once you can begin to merge the audio and the visual parts of it. Uh, and also, frankly, the kinds of people that you can reach then becomes much broader. Not everybody's a visual learner, not everybody's an audio learner, but if you can have a, a, an audio visual medium, you can really, people can just understand and take it in in, in, in other ways. One of, the thing, one of the great surprises I found in Aleph Beta also was uh, regarding audience. Like, let me ask you if you're familiar with my work at all, uh, and I had to, to give you a little bit of a surprise quiz. What demographic, what age demographic do you think is most attracted to what I'm doing? Would you say it is the 45 to 65 crowd, the 65 and up crowd, right? The 20 to 45 crowd, right? Or the, you know, uh, I don't know, the uh, eight to 19 crowd. I mean, I would, I would lean towards the 20 to 45 demographic. Alex thinks 20 to 45, are you? Uh, what was the one after that one? The, what is it? Uh, 45 to 65 or 65, so, yeah. 45 to 65. So what I found was that when I was teaching before that, my main demographic was actually 45 to 65. That was, you know, that was kind of the sweet spot. Those are the people who are coming to listen to me. Once I put stuff online, 
I found that my main demographic was seventh and eighth grade kids. <laughs> okay. Which blew me out of the water because I'm thinking like, well, and it wasn't very ego gratifying either because I'm thinking eh, I'm doing very sophisticated stuff. It's for very sophisticated people with lots of life experience. We're very smart, right? And I have a bunch of seventh and eighth graders who are tuning in and watching this stuff and just taking it all in. They just think it's cartoons or something like what, 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 what's going on? But it turns out that these seventh and eighth grade kids were really getting it. Like they, you know, and it was surprising to me because here you had people who were, uh, you know, the ideas were very sophisticated. It would be the kind of thing that you would teach to Kolo guys in, in a yeshiva or something. And yet these seventh and eighth grade kids were getting it. And I realized that what was happening, it was the confluence of the visual and audio, which allowed this to happen. I mean, kids swim in video nowadays, YouTube and, and technology, you know, Netflix and everything else. But, and it, there just wasn't a lot of great Torah content online. So here, I guess it answered a need for these kids. And, and you know, there's something about a movie which is just compelling. Uh, so it would draw kids in. Um, you know, there was a woman who told me a story where she uh, she said, you know, it was around Purim time and my daughter came to me and she said, Mom, can I watch this video on the Megillah? So I said, sure. Um, so she starts watching this video and an hour and 15 minutes later, she's still watching the video. Like she's got a long attention span, like that's pretty amazing. So she finished the video and the next day she goes to school in Brooklyn and her teacher said, does anybody hear any interesting new ideas on the Megillah? So she raised her hand and she proceeded to give a 10 minute synopsis of everything that she had learned in this hour and a quarter video. And the teacher was like blown away. I was like, where did you get all that from? Uh, how did you know that? And so, uh, and, and how did you remember that? And so she, the teacher called the mother up and the mother asked the daughter, like, how did you, how did you remember all that and put that together? And uh, she said, mom, it was a video. Right, you know, there's something about the video format that's just like, yes, of course, it just makes sense, and it kind of allowed me to go back and sort of change my view of children and intelligence in a way. And what I think, and you know, maybe Piaget would agree. I don't know, is that um, one of the main differences between kids and adults, I think, is not so much that adults are so much smarter than kids; it's that we have more life experience than kids. And one of, the diff one of the things that life experience does, I think, is even on the intellectual level, life experience um, helps you create a library of intellectual images, almost like an alphabet that you can use to grasp new concepts. So if, so if you and I are having a discussion, subconsciously, sometimes what's happening is you're nodding your head and say, oh, I understand what Juan was talking about. I, I come across that idea before. I've come across this idea before. He's talking about these two ideas that I've had in connection with another idea. And you almost have this mental map in your head that you're putting things together with uh, kind of in the back of your mind. And there's this intellectual language of ideas and how they kind of integrate that you're used to already from your life experience. You've come across ideas before. And kids, because they're younger, don't have as robust an alphabet of these mental images. So they have to actually kind of construct them, which is a lot of mental work on the fly. So there's a limit to how sophisticated an idea you can give them because they don't have these mental building blocks in their head to put these ideas together. But if you give them a movie and you actually give them the images, 
they can follow that pretty well into very sophisticated territory that they hadn't seen before. So it allowed, you know, it, to me, it, it surprisingly opened up a whole new dynamic. And, you know, to, to finish answering what you were saying, what video allows you to do, what the internet allows you to do, I, I mentioned before, is to create kind of a, to recreate an intimate experience of just me showing you things. A lot of my methodology um, relies on pattern recognition and seeing patterns in the text. And therefore, a lot of it really is visual. I can try to explain it, and sometimes in a beautifully produced audio, we can sort of, I can sort of take you through and explain my way through just audio, what a pattern looks like. But there's nothing like a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you have the benefit of video to show something like a chiastic structure, which is a, a, you know, an A, B, C, D, C, D, C, B, A structure in text, where you have these themes lining up and on one end and then coming out backwards on the other end and having this sort of center point that they converge around, I can represent that visually uh, you know, in a way that people can say, oh, I, I got that. Um, so, you know, the video uh, really helps, I think, comprehension in that kind of way, too. I find it really interesting how you're saying that you've, you found your outlet uh, to be online, that you had these, this methodology um, and this approach to learning and to presenting ideas that just wasn't working uh, in the old-fashioned, in the old world. Um, but now with the internet and through Alice Beta and through the videos, you've found this approach that is appealing to a wide range of, of people, be it age, be it background, be it you know, level of learning, whatever it is. Um, and they're able to, to grasp the concepts that you are putting out there that perhaps you weren't able to put out there as effectively uh, in print beforehand. Um, so I'm wondering, are there any methodologies, are there any tricks or tools that you utilize in your videos um, that you've now brought back into the old world um, and can be found in, in your book? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, look, you know, the book, uh, you, I, I guess I've only written two books since the, uh, since the beginnings of Aleph Beta. And those two books would have been The Exodus You Almost Passed Over and the new book that Magid will be publishing and, and actually putting out just in a couple of weeks, Genesis of Parsha Companion. And then Exodus is in the works and should be released a couple of months later. Um, in those two books, the Genesis and Exodus Parsha Companion books, uh, what I've done is, is kind of taken some of the Parsha videos as a starting point and then look to expand them more into more robust essays um, and uh, put them back into book format. But you'll notice that the book format is different than a standard book. It's almost like a coffee table book uh, with lots of illustration. When I say illustration, it's not like we have an artist's conception of what baby Moses looked like or what the daughter of Pharaoh looked like, but uh, it is illustrations of patterns in text. Uh, so. I'm making full use of color, uh, you know, a full color uh, to be able to create diagrams which approximate kind of a video kind of learning. But there's an advantage to books also, which you don't get in video. What I find is that 
uh, you know, an aleph beta typically, one of the ways we internally talk about the different products in aleph beta is in terms of snacks, meals, and feasts, right? So uh, we have all of those in aleph beta. A snack is a 10 minute standalone video. A meal is usually an hour to an hour and a quarter, hour and a half long, uh, deeper dive into something usually around the holidays. We have videos like that as well. Feasts are full semester length courses, which you know can be 60 to 80 videos long. And we have a few of those in Aleph Beta as well, Genesis Unveiled uh, and a, a piece on Joseph also. Um, so uh, for me, the more I keep at this, frankly, just between you and me, my interest turns more and more to feasts. Words, that's where my own research interest is, right? In just the large scale epic things that you just can't put in just an hour. You just need more time to do that, you know? And one of the, my perpetual frustrations is that um, the video medium doesn't really lend itself to feasts so much. It sort of does, like you can do that. We have dedicated folks that have made it through some of our feasts and, and you can, but the downside of video is that when you're talking about just a huge expanse of information, one of the things that as a consumer you want is the ability to feel like you're holding it all in your hand and you can kind of have mastery over it. You can master the whole thing. It's very difficult to do that in a series of videos. Watching all of it as videos is a little bit different than binge watching the West Wing or binge watching uh, you know, uh, Hunger Games or whatever it is that you're watching on TV, right? When you're doing that, it's not, I'm not looking to master the whole corpus of Hunger Games. I'm just looking to, to make my way through to kind of have the experience and to kind of, uh, you know, to get to the end and, and allow the experience what it is. It's, there's this little fragment of me that has the you know the present over here and the past will be the past and the future will be the future and I just want to kind of make it through and have that little experience but when you're learning when you're learning Torah you know one of the goals of learning Torah is mastery you want to actually remember what you've learned so it's it's not enough to just to be that little guy making it way its way through things I want to kind of take everything with me I want to hold it all together and and, and be able to go back and to see and to flip forward and how did this piece fit with that piece and how are these things coming together that's hard to do in the video you can right but it's hard like where did i see that other one was that in video 27 or was that in video 22 it's like i wonder if i can rewind and see it's like almost impossible to do that right in a book you can you can you can physically hold the thing you can flip back on the pages you can mark the pages you can circle things you can underline them you can come you can make the thing your own so there's something about books that are better for feasts. So, you know, um, interestingly, the books I'm starting to do with Koran don't take full advantage of that because they're really aggregates of meals, right? Because the Genesis and the Exodus books are conglomerations of essays, which are really meals, not feasts. But, you know, please God, our part my partnership with Koran will continue. And the thing I'm most excited about doing in the future is being able to put out a real good, satisfying feast. I, you know, I've got some great visions. I have a piece on Asia's Chayel, which I'd love to do, which is uh, which is a feast. You know, it's a 300-page book, and uh, to be able to do that in a beautiful, visual, integrated kind of way with Koran is very exciting. Um, I'm doing a piece on Jeremiah now, which would make a great feast. 
a short piece, you know, a nice uh, 40,000, 50,000 word book. To me, that's my greatest excitement. So some of the tools that I'm, to answer your question, some of the tools that I'm taking from video back into audio are the emphasis on trying to use the visual, trying to be creative with color and try to be able to show patterns as much as possible and not be intimidated about doing that. Just and not, uh, that's A. B is the writing style itself. I, in a way, I try to approximate the intimacy of video as if I'm talking to you, almost as if it feels like a an extemporaneous kind of talk. This is one of the ways that my books differ from most of the other books and probably most other books on Koran as well. Whereas I try to achieve a more intimate conversational tone in my book than a sort of detached academic tone. I won't eschew the use of I, the first person, be pretty much out there, I'll tell you what I think and put it out there. I'll invite you to consider something. I'll give you a challenge. It's like I'm learning with you. It feels almost like the spoken word. So it's, it's video-esque in that kind of way that there feels like almost this vicarious back and forth between the author and the reader. So that's the second thing. Um, and then uh, and then the other thing is just to try to integrate with video. I think one of the exciting things also is that when you have a platform where you're doing books and videos, one of the interesting things I'm gonna to try to do is see how those two might be able to integrate. So uh, you can create a book and then uh, the stuff that you're really excited about that you didn't get a chance to put in the book, you can create a companion website where you have four readers of the book, where you have videos that take certain themes and run with them further, right? Which is, I think, an exciting kind of plus for a reader of a book that really fell in love with the content and wants to go further with it, that they'll have a chance more, I think maybe more a more exciting thing than simply reading appendices is the ability to have, uh, you know, a different medium that I can turn to to be able to take these ideas and go further. So you mentioned that the the new Parsha Companion um, on Genesis is sort of an, an aggregate or bring together the different ideas um, from these videos, the meals um, that had on the Parsha that had previously been produced and bring them all together in a book. Um, I guess slightly wary of time and knowing that we don't necessarily have time for the full feast. Is there, let's say, a taste you could give us from, let's say, something that was a meal, a video, a particular idea, a particular thought um, or, or concept that you developed in a video on a particular topic that you've now brought into the book um, and sort of how the way we learn that particular topic maybe varies in video versus book form? Um, let's see. One of the things that I did in the book form uh, is that I created a three essay series on the Jacob saga, which begins in Toldot and then continues through the next two parshiot of Vayetze and Vayishlach. And what I did is I, take, I took certain ideas that were just kernels in the videos, expanded them and wove them together into a three-part mini-feast, which will seem uh, completely new. It begins with, to give you just a taste of it, uh, the, I think the the beginning essay in it is if you were it's entitled if you were Rebecca's lawyer, right? Which I think is an interesting kind of role play game, right? So if you imagine this disastrous story of uh, the purloined blessing, right, when uh, Jacob uh, steals the blessing that was intended for for his brother Asav and then runs away as 
Asaph calamitously decides that he's going to kill his brother one day. Um, and, and that's how Toldot ends. So, you know, it sound, you might argue there's enough blame to go around in the story of how things, you know, went awry. I mean, actually, I should just pull back and say that I, I had some trepidation actually attacking the story and devoting as much time to it as I did. I'm actually kind of proud that in the end, uh, I chose to address this issue head on, the story of the deception, because I think it's one of those stories which we feel most, most angst over, sort of subconscious angst, in the sense that, you know, if I wanted to take sort of an anti-Semitic slant to the whole thing, I could say that the whole Jewish claim to their birthright, you know, what you might argue is just based upon this blatant act of deception, right? And it was supposed to be Asa, not us, right? And, and when you really think about it that way, it's a very disconcerting story, right? It's like, what is going on in this story? Like, he stole that blessing, right? And so, and we can be very defensive about that, right? So, and, and which gives, um, and so we can get into a lot of Asav trash talking, right? So Asav deserved it, he was terrible, he was awful, right? And you will find some Midrashim that will suggest that Asav was an awful guy, but you don't find a, t a lot of support for it in the text. Asav doesn't seem to be such an awful guy. He seems kind of sympathetic, actually, somewhat sympathetic, at least. He seems to be, you know, he gets duped a couple of times. He has this chance to kill his brother at the end, and Parsha Vaishlach doesn't. Um, so he, that seems like a nice enough guy. Um, yes, it's true that he impetuously sells his birthright, uh, and the text goes out of its way to, to call attention to how impetuous that was when uh, he ate, he drank, and he got up and he left. And in so doing, the Torah, God comes out and tells us, that act was an act of debasement, right? He debased the Bechorah, he didn't care about it, which is unusual for the Torah, right? The, the Torah doesn't usually uh, give value judgments like that, it just tells us what happened and leaves it to you to figure out the value judgment. Here, the Torah is telling you what to think about it. No. He debased the Bechara. But that still is the exception and not the rule. So the story kind of, it, it makes you nervous. So I kind of figured I would tackle the story firsthand. And one of the things I do methodologically a lot, um, uh, the uh, actually it's something which I learned a little bit from Yael Unterman, who's uh, down the road from you in Israel. She's a great bibliodrama person. And I kind of learned some of the technique with her. But I think one of the really fascinating things that Yael brings to text is that uh, the, the insistence on inhabiting, just for artistic purposes really, the, or an interpretive purposes, the first person stand, viewpoint of a given character and say, what would it be like to be this, this person? And when you really ask yourself that question, it thrusts you out of a third person reader role and into that person's world to try to inhabit it as much as possible. And you begin to see things that you've never seen before. I remember that we did a session with her in the Alaveda office uh, around Yitro, uh, trying to uh, figure out what it was like, what it would be like uh, to, um, to be Yitro and have your daughters come home and you know, find this guy and what, you know, what the backstory is there, if we can try to create that. So what I sort of do in this essay is ask you to uh, inhabit the world of Rebecca's lawyer, 
right? You know, if you were Rebecca's lawyer, what would it look like for you to defend Rebecca um, against the accusation that she put her son up to this, to this uh, terrible, um, to this terrible thing? And what the essence of the of the argument that I made there is that um, it's something which actually, and I think I credited uh, Roy Simcha Cook, who is uh, currently the Menahel in Nair Yisrael uh, High School, a uh, friend of mine from Baltimore. And it was just a casual comment that he made to me once, but he, he made this comment that stuck to me. He said, you know, if you look very carefully at the text, you never actually find Rebecca telling her son to deceive his father. And I said to myself, that's crazy. Like, of course she does. She tells him to, you know, she, tell, she gives him the clothes, she gets him dressed. He says, yeah, but if you look carefully, like look at the very first conversation she has with them. I looked at the conversation and it's a very interesting conversation. She basically says, look, I overheard your father telling your brother that he wants to bless his, uh, to bless him before he dies and that he should go and hunt some game and bring it back to him to make these delicacies that he loves. So now my son, listen to what it is that I command you to do. I want you to go to your father, right? Make a meal for your father. You bring it to your father and you, uh, and, and you present that to your father and you go get a blessing before he dies. And that's all she says to him. Now, if you just stop right there, it struck me that one second, like, and, and this is another sort of methodological tool, which I use a lot, which is kind of like stop the tape. If you didn't know the end of the story and all you knew was this, and the story stopped right there, what would you make of what she's saying? And part of the thing is the methodological tool that I use here, as I call it, never read with the end in mind, which is never let your perception of what happens at the end of the story prejudice your interpretation of what's happening at the beginning of the story. The, the characters didn't know what was going to happen at the end of the story. All they knew what was happening now. So if, you're, if you were Yaakov and your mother came to you and said, hey, I heard your father go telling your brother to go get some game and make these delicacies so he could bless him, why don't you go get some food and go to your father so he can bless you? Would you think I'm telling you to go deceive your father? No. You would think you're saying, look, you stand up. Don't be such a lamela. You, you can make a case here. He's not the only one who can give, you, give dad food. You go give dad food and you say that you think you should get a blessing too. You don't think you shouldn't be the only one to get a blessing. Like there was no deception there. Now the story, so then you have to ask, well, if she didn't actually think that she was deceiving him, so then how did it cascade into what became a deception? That's a very interesting question. But it doesn't take away from the point that that doesn't seem to be what she's trying to do. So that begins to start kind of this mystery, uh, this, this kind of mystery story, which is like, so what was her intent? And how did it go so catastrophically wrong? Like what happened? And that's, I think, the beginning of the argument of Rebecca's lawyer, right? This isn't what she intended, that this story careened out of control in some kind of way. And what do you learn from how it careened out of control? So that's the essence of, uh, of, of kind of the essay. I found it, you know, it was, it was satisfying. It's a longer essay. And once I developed that, I began to see how the ideas in it allowed me to take some of the, the later videos we've done and see them in a new kind of prism and put together that three-part series. So that's part of the creative process that it takes when you 
have the ability to go back to your work after you know a year or two or three and see it new you learn it again new and you'd be able to see some new sides to it and uh you know you come up with something that's different than the first time around right so i think for me at least one of the most exciting things about uh what you do is this idea of, of never reading with with the end in mind um and now that you're, you're occupying this both the online and in print spaces uh to teach using this methodology and uh you know looking for for patterns in the text or reading the text from different perspectives etc um is this something uh that you see as just you know another approach um to teaching tara that's understandably caught the attention of many many people um or have you noticed this this methodology finding its way deeper into more traditional teaching circles or even just you know non-traditional do you, do you find people have taken it and started running with it as well um as this like a, a new way to appreciate and understand and, and really um you know engage with with tara and certainly the tanakh text um you know this is just a novel method uh, you know rather than just learning verse by verse with a commentary or two or or whatever as in is do you find that this this methodology is being picked up more and more as time goes on yeah i think the methodology that i'm working with um is slowly becoming more out there i don't know to what extent it's because of aleph beta and it's because my teachings are getting around i think that's certainly part of it and it may also just be because these are the times we live in and it's it's in the wind. Um, you know, uh, Leibniz and Newton both discovered the calculus independently within a couple of years of each other without ever collaborating. And sometimes something is just in the wind and, you know, the time is right. And uh, so I think there are more and more people out there that are using methodology similar to mine. I think you know, some of them, perhaps many of them, uh, have seen what I'm doing and are starting to do it themselves, which is wonderful. And others are, you know, are independently coming up with us somehow because maybe it's in the air. Um, but either way, I think it's, you know, it's exciting. To me, uh, the essence of what I'm doing and the essence of what other people are doing who are playing in the same sandbox, as it were, in terms of this methodology, is arguing that you know the answer to one of the most fundamental questions which what does torah commentary mean or who is the earliest torah commentator you know of the answer might be the torah itself right which is pretty remarkable right before rashi before the Ebenezer, ezra before the ramban for all the medieval commentators what if i told you the earliest commentator on the torah was the Torah itself. And you say, well, how does the Torah comment on itself? That seems like a ridiculous thing to say. The Torah is the book. Later folks are commentators. But the answer is, well, what if I showed you that there were, that certain parshim in the Torah were designed to overlap on other parshim in the Torah such that they became a lens through which to view the other ones? If you view a lens in a screen, what if you viewed one text as a lens upon another text, which is the screen? And, you know, what if the Torah showed you which text is the lens and which text is the screen by creating this, this elaborate web of connections between 
these two seemingly disconnected texts suggesting that they're meant to be viewed in concert with each other. So to me, that's a very exciting era we live in, right? To be able to see that because it, 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 you know, it, it gives the, you know, it, you can imagine a skeptic saying, uh, you know, you're a religious crazy guy because you believe that the Torah has, has nearly infinite wisdom, but the Torah is a finite book with finite words. And how can a finite set of words contain all this infinite wisdom? You can't just tell me what's well, all in the commentaries. It's got to be in the book itself. Where is it in the book? It's just a bunch of words. But if you say that the book is created in such a way that there's a vast interconnecting web within the book of interconnected information and that there's this story and there's five other stories that are connected to it that each shedding light on it and that this and that those five other stories are connected to all these other you know the, the, you very quickly approach an almost infinite web of information and to be able to be, live in a time where we're starting to understand that and be able to uncover some of the implications of that, just right there in the text and see, you know, the oldest commentator there was is a very privileged thing. It's a, it's wonderful to be in that world and to have colleagues that are doing it and be able to talk to them about it. I think it's a, it's a brave new world of Torah study that, uh, that we're on the cusp of. So to me, that's exciting. I can't imagine doing anything more, more exciting with my time than you know, than spending it in uh, spending it in that sandbox, and also I think it's just from a spiritual angle, it's um, it's amazing, you know, because you, you you come to Israel, and if I asked you, so what's the spiritual appeal of Israel? Well, why is Israel so compelling to people? People will come from afar, they'll come on a birthright trip, and they'll come to Israel, and they'll uh, go and dig in an archaeological dig in some tell, and they'll uh, and they'll unearth this coin from the Maccabean, you know, times or from the Roman revolt of Bar Kokhba. And there's something special about a moment like that, where you're on this dig and you, and you dig something, you find this coin, and you feel like this visceral connection to this Jewish past that's so much larger than yourself. It's just you with your hands in the dirt, and you're there, and you have this, this feeling of connection with with a history and a world and, and a people that's so much bigger than you. Uh, it feels to me like Torah can't, Torah study can be like that, right? The, the other great gift that God gave us beside the land of Israel is the Torah, and the Torah is also this marvelous, awesome mystery. And if you can give somebody the ability to connect with it, to give them the tools and the spades to dig into it and to connect and to find that coin and to discover something that maybe no one else has seen in the history of Torah commentary for the last 3,000 years, and you discovered this connection, and you, you saw what this text is really saying and how it, it how, how there's this other text that's riding on top of it, and the two things go together. There's nothing more powerful than that, and it, it has the ability to transform someone's relationship to Torah the same way that digging in that tell can transform your relationship to the land. Um, and uh, I think it's, there's great power in it. So I'm, I'm excited about this era that we live in and I'm excited to be, to be a part of it. Well, 
It's uh, it's been really really fascinating to hear about a, a bit of a, the background of Aleph Beaton, obviously to talk about um, the exciting next steps uh, that we're really delighted and honoured to be able to uh, be taking with you in terms of the Parsha Companions. Um, to hear about the snacks, the meals and the feasts, obviously at the end of every feast um, you've got a bench. Um, so I guess if it's time for benching, I guess I'll, we just wanted to thank you so much for your time um, and, and, and telling us a bit more about it. And I uh, really hope to have you back on the Quran podcast soon. Okay, great. Thank you for having me. And uh, the, the partnership with Quran is very exciting. I hope we get a chance to produce many, many wonderful works together and uh, sit down on a podcast and talk about it. I mean, thanks so much. Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, that's it from another great episode of the Corin podcast. Alex, if you want to get in touch with us, how can they do so? As always, we're on social media at Corin Publishers, or you can send us an email, podcast at corinpub.com. Uh, for 10% off your next order, just head on over to www.corinpub.com. And when you're ready to check out, just enter promo code podcast. Um, make sure you check out Rabbi Foreman's new book, Genesis, a Parsha Companion, which is coming very soon from Mugged Books. And you can get your first month free on a premium membership from alephbeta.org using promo code Parsha Companion. That's P-A-R-S-H-A-C-O-M-P-A-N-I-O-N at alephbeta.org. Um, and if you're not already familiar, uh, go and check out Safaria. Uh, to see all the amazing things that Rabbanit Walkenfeld was telling us about earlier on. Until next time, this has been the Corinne Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>